For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now as we go to your word that you would let us see Jesus with such amazing clarity that we would love him as we ought. Thank you for your love for us. Lord, I ask that you would let us be blessed by it, that we would feel it and rejoice in it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask at the beginning, right now, what is the best live music that you have ever heard? And I'd love it if you had a specific event in your mind. I, I asked this question to a couple different people throughout the week. Uh, for, for Chris, he mentioned two shows. One was DC Talk in 1995. It's very formative. One was Casting Crowns. I'm not sure when he, when he saw them, but, but more recently, he said their show was just incredible. They were able to take music that everyone knew and yet change it and make it fresh, and it was incredible to watch. Amy Highfield said seeing Ed Sheeran was absolutely incredible. So think for just a second. What's yours? What's the best live music that you have ever seen? I'm looking over, I just, I just saw Clay Buck. Clay said seeing Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66 at Pine Knob was incredible. What's yours? This matters in a huge way. And, and I want you to think about it for just a minute. I really don't care what type of music it is. You know, some, some people like a particular type of music, and, and music is polarizing and divisive. If you like one type, you don't understand why everyone doesn't agree with you. When I was in high school, I, I liked rock and roll, and, and I still do, to be honest. It, it, but when I was in high school, I hated bluegrass. Like, why would you listen to that when there's something so much better? Now, I'm a little bit more open-minded. I enjoy a wide variety of music. And I say that because it really doesn't matter what type of music you're thinking about. Whether you like to be at a kind of concert where people stand up and, and maybe jump around, or if you love great classical music, and it's so beautiful that everyone there is dead silent just so they can listen, and they're perfectly still so there are no distractions. Both types of live music do the same thing. They draw you in. And you love 
being in that moment with something that's so exquisitely beautiful or something that makes you want to dance and something that makes you want to move. So I'd love it if you could be specific in this moment and think about a time, think about a place when you enjoyed something so incredible that you never wanted that moment to end. Here's the thing that that makes something like that even better. For most of the people that I ask this question to, a lot of them not only described the concert, and, and as they were talking about it, they were so excited, they were saying it in things that would make me love it and wish that I had been there, because they immediately wanted to share the greatness of that experience with me, even if I hadn't been there at all. And almost everyone mentioned that they were with someone else. It might have been a spouse, might have been a close friend, it, it might have been a parent. But sharing that moment with someone else made it even better. For me, the greatest concert that I have ever been to was a glass harp show in 2006. And almost, I know, who knows who glass harp is? Why, it's, it's almost worthless. Let me tell you, my favorite guitar player is a man named Phil Kagey. I actually just saw him Friday night. He is an incredible performer. 90% of his shows, he plays just an acoustic guitar, and he's got some, some effects so that he can record things live on the spot. And then he'll even harmonize with his own vocals. He'll, he'll sing background parts, and it's like watching somebody joyfully record a studio album in front of you. Uh, when we were there Friday, somebody called out a song, and he kind of laughed. He said, you know, I've never played that song before. And then he said, but I'll give it a try. And we just loved watching him be so spontaneous. But in 2006, I got to see him play with his original band from the late 1960s in a small venue. And there were maybe only 50 people there. And it was so incredible. I saw my favorite guitar player playing my favorite music. And here's what made it even better. My dad was sitting next to me. And me and my dad loved being there, and we loved that memory. And it's still special 13 years later, because it was so good. And here's the thing that being at a concert does for everyone who loves music. For a little while, you admire something truly great. And you love doing it. In fact, you love it so much, you want to share that experience with other people. And a good artist, a good musician, is, is someone that they don't need the audience. Have you ever seen like kind of an arrogant musician? So, somebody who's just so full of himself that people kind of get sick of his personality. It's like his music's okay, but he's such a jerk. Who, who wants to like, you know? A great musician enters into that community and they're doing what they love to do, but they don't belittle other people. They welcome them in. And so it becomes this great experience where you are fellowshipping with other people. And, and I, like I said, I believe this happens with all kinds of great music in live performance. And here is why I'm talking about it. Because I believe that if I talk to you about heaven, 
probably at least half of you would say, that sounds so boring. What will you do for all of eternity? Why would you even care or want to go? Considering the alternative, all right, maybe you're, maybe you're sold. But I think the thing that we miss about heaven is that it is very much like the best concert you have ever been to in your life, sharing fellowship with other people in the presence of God and all of his glory. And the greatest attraction is God himself, who, like the greatest artist in the universe, welcomes you into his greatness and shares it with you. So you love being in his presence, and that concert will never end. Think for a second. The the Bible talks about heaven in terms of a feast. So if I could switch metaphors for a moment. Imagine the best concert in the world with the best people that you love and you are eating the best food that you can imagine. And it never ends. The reason that I want to talk about heaven for a little bit this morning is because our text talks about heaven. We as a church have been going through the book of Luke, and and I wanted to take just a few moments and ask you to carefully consider the things that God blesses us with now that give us a little taste of heaven in this life so that we can consider what Jesus has to say. And we've been going through the book of Luke. We've been in Luke probably about 10 months. We're we're a little over halfway through. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 13 today. And I want to ask you to consider what Jesus says about not only heaven, but also hell. And so I've tried to describe heaven in a way that is enticing. Because my desire is to help you realize that God is so awesome that you want to know him. But I also need to be faithful to what Jesus does and talk a little bit about what hell is like. And so consider for a moment, it is the exact opposite of heaven. There is nothing beautiful to look at and nothing beautiful to hear. There is no one to enjoy anything with. It's like being in a lunchroom on your first day in a new school. And not only do you not know anyone, everyone is distant and enjoying things that you have no part of, and they will not welcome you. So you sit alone. Except it's infinitely worse than that. Instead of joy, there is weeping. Instead of love, there is soul-destroying hatred bubbling up from your own soul. Instead of peace, there is anger and anxiety. Instead of light, there is utter darkness. You might ask, why would I ever talk about something so awful publicly? And the answer is because Jesus talks about it. And I want to say this right now to everyone here because the Bible makes it so clear. God loves you. If I could look you in the eye right now, I would look you square in the eye with the confidence 
of all of the scriptures and just tell you, God loves you. As we talk about heaven and as we talk about hell, the thing you need to know is that your creator loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you would never need to experience hell and instead so that he could invite you and welcome you into his presence in all of the glory of heaven that would never end. But many will not be saved. Jesus longs for people to be saved. And you can see that in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. The question is, most importantly, will you be saved? The Bible teaches that every person in the world will either spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. The question is, where will you go? There are some people here who have probably not thought very much about it. Some people here who have thought about it. And we all have opinions. Many people would say things like, well, a loving God would never allow anyone to go to hell. That's an opinion. But the thing is, what is it based in? If you rest your eternity on that opinion, what evidence do you have that it's true? And what I want to show you from the scriptures today is that a loving God does indeed allow people to go to hell. But he has made a way of escape, and he has made a way out. And so I want to show you from the scriptures today how you can rest in the salvation that God provides. And I want to look as someone asked Jesus the question that we've been considering. And I want to urge you to be obedient to what Jesus says. It's not about my opinion. It's not about what I think. It's about what Jesus thinks. So I'm in the book of Luke, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. I would encourage you to grab one. They're all over the room here. You can find them in the seats down in front of you. And I would encourage you to find the book of Luke. It's towards the end of the Bible, probably like three quarters of the way through. It's a large book. If you just use the the thumb flipping method, find where it says Luke at the top of the page. Find chapter 13. And I'm going to be beginning in verse 22. And I want to urge you, as I read through this passage, to listen carefully to the words of Jesus. I'm going to read 22 down through verse 30. It says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first 
who will be last. I want to urge you as we look through this passage carefully to pay attention to what Jesus does with this question. Someone comes up to him and and almost assuming that he's already fine, he asks Jesus, are those who are saved going to be few? You see, in context, Jesus' ministry was not always characterized by wild, enthusiastic acceptance. He was drawing large crowds. Thousands of people were coming to hear him. But the religious leaders of the day dismissed him for many reasons. Luke shows they were jealous because of the way he attracted crowds. They wanted the same sort of attention, the same sort of recognition that he received. It also taught that they loved money. And because of their love of money, they would not believe or consider the things that Jesus taught. And so, throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, from the beginning of the gospel all the way through to the end, you see the conflict with the Pharisees is rising. So if you were someone who paid attention to what was happening in all of Israel, as Jesus traveled around and preached from place to place, you might put two and two together and recognize he's very popular with some people but not with everyone. And so if you think that this is the Messiah, if you think this is a teacher that you need to listen to, it's very natural to wonder, why doesn't everyone see this? Why doesn't everyone follow? And so this person comes to Christ and just asks him directly, Are only a few people going to be saved? What what is really happening? And Jesus, he eventually gives one of the more direct answers. Very often, Jesus, when he answers a question, will answer the question you should have asked instead of the question you did ask. In this case, he actually is pretty straightforward. But before he tells this person what they asked, he gives one personal command, and it's a command that I need to obey, and it's a command that you need to obey. And listen to what he says. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He leads with the idea that you and I are not to be overly concerned with what the rest of the world is doing. We are to be concerned very much with whether or not we are right with God. And Jesus says, strive, strive. It's not a word we use very much in English. The Greek word behind it is literally a word for agonizing. It can be an energetic word. When we think of agonizing, it's like this inner emotional turmoil. This is just a word that describes great effort. And yes, some emotional turmoil as well. There's an attitude that it takes a lot of work. And now this is stunning because we're going to see the whole Bible teaches that salvation is not by works, it's by grace. And Jesus is going to show that at the very last verse here, in verse 30, he says, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. The reason that's true is that God gives you salvation as a gift. So you might be the kind of person that you would think, man, that person's not religious at all, man, they're a wreck. 
And yet by the mercy and the grace of God, that person that you and I might consider as dead last is first because God has loved them and given them salvation as a gift because they recognized that they needed his mercy and they needed his grace. So why does Jesus say, strive? Why does he want us to work? And what is it that we are to work at? Well, to answer that question, I believe we need to look at some things throughout Luke's gospel. This is not the only place that Jesus talks about this. And the beauty of Luke's gospel is he not only tells you what's true, he illustrates it. He shows it. So you have examples to look at of people who strove in the way that Jesus is commanding you and I to strive. And so I've got three things that I believe really capture what it means for us to strive to enter by the narrow gate with the firm warning that many will try to enter and will not be able. How can you and I have assurance that we will be able to enter by this narrow gate that Jesus is talking about? Well, first, I want to point you to a verse at the very end of Luke's gospel. If you go to Luke chapter 24, Luke bookends his entire gospel with two things. He gives you a purpose statement of why he's writing and how he's writing at the beginning. And at the end, he gives you a mission statement of what you should do as a result of everything that he has written. And so if you look at Luke chapter 24, I'm just going to read verses 44 through 47, and you're going to see really what Jesus wants absolutely everyone to do because of what he has done. So Jesus is speaking, and it says, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So, so time out for just a second. Everything that has happened in Jesus' life that Luke recorded happened because his life had to fulfill what God had said in advance. His life was not an accident. His crucifixion was not an accident. The resurrection was not an accident. It all happened to fulfill God's plan. And then he says, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here's the most important thing, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What's the point of Luke's whole gospel? Luke wants you to know that you can be forgiven for your sins, that repentance leads to salvation. And the reason you can be forgiven is because Jesus died and rose from the dead in fulfillment of everything God spoke from Genesis all the way through to the end of the Bible. This is why Luke wrote his gospel. He wants you to know Jesus' life perfectly fulfilled God's plan exactly. And because Jesus lived and died and rose again, the thing that must happen is we must preach the good news of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So part of striving, what does it mean to strive? Part of striving is repentance. That means we have to know what, what repentance is. And here's great news. 
Luke shows you again and again and again. I, I don't want to turn to the story of Zacchaeus. Most of you will probably know it. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he, that, that, that little guy. Zacchaeus is a rich man. And he has earned some of his wealth wrongfully. He has cheated people. He has robbed them. He is a government-sanctioned thief. And when he sees Jesus, he knows he needs to repent. His sins will leave him cut off from the presence of God. And so when he sees Jesus, he does repent. And there are some things, I I can't wait, we're going to preach that in, in just a couple of weeks. It's chapter 17, and I can't wait till we get there. But give you a foretaste of it now, Zacchaeus not only says to the Lord that he's sorry, part of his repentance is a changed life. He becomes a person who is generous. He was a person who was greedy. And when he repented of his sin, God changed him, and he gives away half of all he owns to the poor. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. Not because Zacchaeus gave away some money, but because Zacchaeus genuinely repented and you could see his repentance because his life changed. So Zacchaeus is just one snapshot. What does it mean to repent? It means to be sorry for your sin and to forsake it, to be different because you've received mercy from God Almighty. So Zacchaeus is one little snapshot, one little picture. Here's the one I do want you to turn to. Look at chapter 7 with me. It's a little bit earlier in the gospel. You may remember, we've already talked about this a little bit. Jesus is invited to a dinner with a Pharisee. And while he's having dinner with this religious person, Luke chapter 7, verse 37, describes this scene. It says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Notice what Luke says. He is very honest about the moral character of this woman. Luke says, she was a sinner. There is remorse in her life because of the wrong that she has done, and it really was wrong. Most people don't confess their sins because they won't admit that what they've done is wrong. Or if there is any acknowledgement that there was something wrong, they, they just minimize it and say, you know, it's so small compared to the things that really bad people do. God's not going to care. But God never minimizes our sin. God never minimizes our sin. He wouldn't be holy if he did. He wouldn't be loving if he did. He would be playing favorites. And we all hate people who play favorites. God doesn't play favorites and overlook some sin because it's small and just punish big sin because it's big. The Bible teaches that we need to confess our sin no matter how we feel about it. And God is very clear about what sin is. It's not up to your opinion or my opinion. It's not about what the world says is right and wrong or what is popular. It's about what God says is right and wrong. So God is very clear. He says things like, do not lie. Do not steal. 
Do not commit adultery. And, and I'll remind you, Jesus said that looking at a person with lust in your heart counts as adultery. He said, do not murder. And he said that, that if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, it's as if you murdered him. So the internal attitudes of your heart matter very much to God. And I'll add that the book of James says, if you are guilty in one point, you are guilty of breaking the whole law because all it takes is one small sin and you are a lawbreaker, alienated from God and in danger of his judgment. And perhaps the command that we break most often, the first commandment, have no other gods before me and worship the Lord your God and serve him. We are accountable for whether or not we have worshipped God as we should. And many people don't give God anything. They don't give of their time. They don't give of their money. They don't praise Him with their hearts. They don't acknowledge His love. They live as if He didn't exist. And Jesus said that is the first commandment, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. These are the commands of God, and to break these commands is to sin. And when Jesus sees this woman, Luke records she was a sinner. He gets that out straight. He doesn't say, you're fine. He doesn't say, you do you. He acknowledges that she is a sinner. Look with me at the text. He, he tells Simon, this, this religious person, that, that freaks out over the way Jesus accepted this woman into his presence. He says, because of what this woman has done, she's showing her affection for Christ who can forgive her sins. And go down with me to verse 47. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. You see, she repents. She acknowledges her sin before God and she is sorry for her sin. She admits that what she has done is wrong. She doesn't go get a second opinion. She doesn't find someone to tell her, you know, what you're doing is really fine. And the people that criticize you are just haters and judgmental. You keep on doing what you're doing. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus acknowledges her sins are many. And he forgave them all. Because she repented. And she experienced the forgiveness and peace given to her by Christ. The last thing Jesus says to this woman is verse 50. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, see, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Biblical repentance is not just grief over sin. There are lots of people that live with regrets. There are lots of people who are sad for the things that they've done. But the other side of biblical repentance is faith. See, this woman, when she came to Christ, she wasn't just sorry for what she had done. She wasn't just in grief and remorse. She had confidence that Jesus could do something to fix it. She recognized that Jesus was someone who would welcome her and heal her spiritual sickness so that she could have peace 
with God. It wasn't just that she was sorry and full of regret. It's that she was full of hope that Jesus could fix the problem. So how do you strive? Number one, you repent. Acknowledge your sin before God and recognize as you do that, That God is a God who is full of mercy because Jesus died in your place and paid for your sins. God will extend mercy to you. Lauren read from Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what that passage means. You call on the name of the Lord just like that woman did in tears, but also in faith, recognizing that when you ask God to forgive you and save you, he will. He always will. That's who he is. The second thing that Luke makes clear about striving, not only is it repentance and faith, there's also the the clear expectation from the Savior that you and I live lives of obedience. You don't have a one-time religious experience and then move on with the rest of your life as if God didn't exist. You strive by obeying. Think for just a second what, what striving would be like if you could just get it all done with in 15 minutes at the end of a service. And then, that's not striving. That's not work. And what I'm arguing today is that the salvation that God gives us by grace really is a gift of grace, and yet it begins a life of obedience that never ends. It's a life of joyful obedience. It's a good life. But it's a life that's forever changed. Just like Zacchaeus moved from being a greedy person to a generous person. Just like this woman moved from being known by the whole city as a sinner. She would have changed to a woman who was known of noble character. You don't just say you're sorry and then live unchanged. You begin a life of obedience. Now, I want to demonstrate this is true biblically. In the Gospel of Luke, in two verses. So let me give you two verses. And if you want to turn there, you can. If if not, you can just listen. Chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus is teaching, and he's at the end of a long sermon that he's just taught. And he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In other words, imagine for a moment that woman came to the Lord. She's weeping. She's sorry for her sin. She experiences the, fe- the peace and forgiveness that Jesus offers her. And then she goes and commits all the same sins. Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect after you come to Christ. I'm saying there, there's a life orientation that changes. There's a difference. You're going to mess up. You will. But here's the difference. Some people act like you can just settle this thing, and it doesn't matter what you do after that. Say, well... The blood of Jesus covers my sin, so go ahead and sin. That is not what Jesus says. Don't come to him and ask for forgiveness and then live a life of disobedience. He would say to you and to me, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Striving means you listen to his teaching and you put it into practice in your life. You never stop depending on grace. But you begin a life of obedience. You begin a life where you are dedicated to worshiping the Lord. Where you are honest. Where you work hard so that you can be a blessing to other people. 
And so you strive by repenting and placing your faith in Christ. You strive by being obedient to Christ. I'll give you one other verse that, that shows the same thing. In Luke chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says so clearly, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, you listen to what God says in the Bible and you do what it says. You put it into practice. So you strive through repentance and faith. You strive through obedience. This is why Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. Remember that, that guy that, that he's going down the road, sees this guy who's been attacked by thieves and the good Samaritan loves his neighbor by binding his wounds, by paying his bills, by giving the man what he needs. Jesus says that if you come to him in faith, your life forever after needs to be characterized by obeying his teaching. And I want to give you one other thing that is so true throughout the Gospel of Luke. If you've listened to to the messages that have led up to this message, you know how much Jesus emphasizes his teaching and his preaching ministry. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, it said it again in verse 22 of our text. When, When someone approached him with this question, Will those who are saved be few? Right before that, what was Jesus doing? It says he was going on his way through towns and villages, teaching. Jesus was dedicated to helping people know the word of God. Why? Because you have to know the word of God for, for two reasons. You're never going to repent of your sins if you don't know what God says about sin. And you'll never be able to live a life of obedience if you don't know what God tells you and I to do. So the third way that I believe Luke teaches us to strive is through teachability. Teachability. You don't come to God and say, all right, I know what God expects of me. The truth is we don't. We are full of ideas and opinions that are wrong because we are sinners. We love to minimize our own sins and we love to maximize our virtues. And the word of God comes in and it confronts our sins and it helps us realize that even our virtues are often misguided and and wrongly motivated. And the word of God helps you begin to truly obey in a way that honors the Lord, in a way that changes you completely. So if you're going to strive and be obedient to the Lord Jesus, you have to be teachable. And I've got two verses again that come from Luke's gospel here that I want to demonstrate the whole gospel supports what I'm teaching here. So, so in Luke 10, 38 and following, Jesus describes right after the parable of the Good Samaritan, he describes Mary and Martha. Mary sits at the Lord's feet, and she wants to listen to him teach. That's verse 39. That's exactly what it says. Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That's her heart. That's what Jesus commends. Martha is dedicated to service. And you might think, because he's just told the parable of the Good Samaritan, that Jesus is going to tell Mary to get up. That's what Martha wants. She she says that Martha, she's distracted with much serving. This is verse 40. She went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You know what Jesus does? He says, no. He says, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. 
Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. In other words, if we're going to strive as Jesus has taught us to strive, there needs to be time in your life when you regularly sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his word being taught. You can do this on your own, and yet I believe the New Testament is so clear. It says you're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That means you need to be with other Christians on a regular basis so that you can encourage each other. The heart of God is not to lay burdens on you. The heart of God is to bless you. And so his commands are for your good. Jesus wants you to sit under his teaching because his teaching is good for you. So he shows you that with the story of Mary and Martha, it perfectly balances the good Samaritan. Because those of you who may be tempted to just sit down and listen to teaching for the rest of your life, you need to get up and do some service. You need to hear the good Samaritan. You need to live a life of obedience. But many of us feel like teaching is unimportant. You know, theologians, they love to argue and who knows what's true. Don't worry about that. Be dedicated to the word of God. If you're faithful to the word of God, your understanding will grow. So be obedient and strive in the way that Jesus wants you to. Be teachable. There's one other verse that, that I wanted to mention again. Uh, it just And I already mentioned it once. He says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That implies you have to be able to hear it. Sit under the word being taught. So strive. The, the question is, are you doing these things? Have you repented? You know, Christians, because Jesus commanded it, Christians show repentance first through baptism. Have you been baptized to show that you deserve death because of your sins? That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. And as you go in the waters of baptism, you're showing, I died with Christ. It's as if I were crucified because he was crucified in my place. And then praise God as you come up out of the water, what that is showing is that because Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says because death could not hold him, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. So if you have never been baptized, let me urge you to be baptized to show that repentance and then begin living a life of obedience. Let me ask you, are you learning the word of God so that you can become a stronger Christian? So that you can become the kind of Christian who loves God and who loves people more and more? Because, here's the thing, this isn't just a a motivational talk where I'm saying strive, strive, strive. Jesus gives motivation in our text. Jesus warns that many people will be lost. So look again with me back at Luke 13. He says, Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So in answer to this guy's question, Lord, are few going to be saved? He's saying there are many who will not be. He doesn't answer it directly immediately. He says, just be aware, you should be concerned about yourself because many people will be lost. Then the frightening thing is, many of those who are lost think that they know Christ. Look at verse 24. He says, Many, I tell you, will will seek to enter and will not be able. In other words, they're trying to enter. And Jesus warns that when, when the master of the house has risen and shut the door, 
And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. They address him as Lord. Like a lot of people think of Jesus kind of highly. Like they think he's a good teacher. In our culture, we would probably say, you know, teacher, let us in. But Jesus says, I don't know you. And he, contem- he condemns them for two reasons. Number one, they don't genuinely know Christ. They know his name. They know a little bit about him. But they have no relationship with him. And number two, it says very clearly, verse 27, they are workers of evil. They do things that are wrong. Now, these are people that that I believe we would consider them probably church people because they call Christ Lord and they address him as if they know him. These are the people that are familiar with what Jesus teaches. On the outside, they look great. But inside, they're dead and they work evil and their evil condemns them before God. They don't obey. They don't listen. In fact, many times, self-righteous people don't repent because they're convinced they don't need to. So it's, it's harder for a church person to repent because there's also a level of pride there. Like, if I repent in front of other people, they're going to know that I'm a sinner. Like, as if we didn't already know. The frightening thing is, many of those who are lost think they are saved, and they comfort themselves... With lies. So the question is, are you striving? Or are you one of those who will be judged for your sins while you deny that they're a big deal? Jesus shows many of these people never repented because they died continuing in their sin. Your guilt will condemn you if you do not know Jesus. Jesus says so clearly that he didn't know these people. If he had known them like that woman who came to him and repented, he would have given them forgiveness and peace and assurance, but he did not know them. The question for you and me is, how do you know if you know Jesus? Because it's not that the people who are saved are sinless. He makes that very clear. I already mentioned the verse, some who are last will be first. Some of the people that we would identify as the biggest sinners are the people who will be in glory close to the Father because they have experienced the forgiveness of sins. The question is, how do you experience that forgiveness? You begin by obeying the Lord Jesus, publicly acknowledging your sin through baptism and through being Uh, raised up out of that water, saying, I want to live for Christ. I want to obey him. That's the beginning. Jesus will give you the Holy Spirit. You can't obey God on your own. You need the Holy Spirit in you. And you'll begin to know Jesus in a personal way. See, it's kind of weird Christians talk about knowing this guy that hasn't walked on earth for over 2,000 years. But I can guarantee you, when you know the Lord and you have the Holy Spirit, it takes time to know him well. It's it's not as if he's your best friend instantly. But the longer you know him and the better you know him, the crazy thing is you start to realize when other people have the same Holy Spirit. See, Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, said, it's for your benefit that I go away because if I go, I will send you another comforter and you receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus connects you with Jesus so that you really genuinely do know him. And you know him better and better the longer you know him. And one of the ways that you know who Jesus is, is through other Christians. Because 
Other Christians have the same spirit. And we are being transformed into the image of Jesus. So if you want to know what Jesus is like, get to know a Christian who's known Jesus for a long time. And the incredible thing is, the more Christians you know who know Jesus well, you're amazed at what Jesus is like, and you can see it and experience it in living people. Now, I don't want to minimize the Word of God. The the Word of God is, is the number one way we know what Jesus is like. That's why God gave it to us. But the problem with only looking at the Word of God is sometimes it, it's, it becomes a dead religion. You just stare at the book and you never look up and never recognize what God is doing now. And what I want you to realize is it's genuinely possible to know Jesus in a personal way through the Holy Spirit. One day when you see Him face to face, if you know Him, He won't be a stranger. The problem with these people is they never knew Him. They didn't have his spirit. They'd never repented. They didn't listen to what he said, and they did not obey. And so as a result, they were condemned. Jesus said very clearly, time is running out. There's an urgency here, and I would encourage you to settle this question today. If you need to be baptized, I want to ask you to commit to talking to me before you leave. I would love to be able to baptize you. Even today, we'll fill the baptistry. It takes like probably four hours, but we'll do it. I would urge you, settle this question. Have you ever repented publicly? Have you ever said, my life belongs to God? And if you have, Jesus' command is still for you. We are urged again and again to test our hearts to know if we are part of God's people. And that is always urgent. Jesus is is not bashful about talking about what hell is like. Not only is time running out, the punishment is awful. I already talked a little bit about hell in the beginning, in the introduction, but but Jesus says very clearly, he describes it as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be cast out into outer darkness. Don't be one of those people. Not only is the punishment awful, at the same time, Jesus says this feast is incredible. And you know he's talking about heaven because he describes all of these people who died thousands of years before he was born. Talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom of God. And they're feasting. They're sitting at the table of God. They're enjoying fellowship with each other and with God Almighty. And and Jesus finally answers this guy's question with the hope of grace. Don't miss this. Verse 29. In answer to the question, are those who saved going to be few? Jesus ultimately says, people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. There's that feasting image. The best meal you could possibly enjoy with the best people in the world. And we'll all be praising God for all of eternity with all of the creativity that God has given each of us. Some of you are not musicians. And I think that those of us who are musicians will probably be better musicians, hopefully. If you're not musical and heaven sounds boring, don't worry about it. Because whatever gift God has given you, 
you will be using to your maximum capacity. Some of you guys like to build things. Some of, some of you are carpenters, and, and I don't know about you, but when I try to build things, I make lots and lots of mistakes. My building here on this earth is full of frustration. It never turns out right. But I love doing it because I'm made in the image of God and I love to create things. That's part of what it means to be in his image. So if that's you and that's your gift and you're good at that, imagine doing that to the glory of God in heaven and creating amazing, beautiful things, but without frustration. It's just full of joy. Some of you love to cook, and I believe you will cook to the glory of God, and I will eat to the glory of God. That's what this picture is about. It's about fellowship with God Almighty in all of the goodness of creation. And so there's the hope of grace. You see, some people feel cut off from God because they're convinced their sins are so big that God doesn't love them and doesn't want them. And that's not true. No matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter how God has made you, God offers you grace. That's what Jesus means when he says, some are first who will be last. That woman I talked about who comes to Christ with tears in her eyes, the whole town knew her as a sinner. They would look at her and go, oh yeah, that, that's, that, she's the local sinner. They would have said she was dead last. Feasting with Abraham, absolutely not. And Jesus said, that kind of woman, she's going to be first. And you can think about the social outcasts of our days, the people who are awkward, the people who are feeling lonely, the people who know that they need God can rest in the grace of God. God loves you and will forgive your sins, but you have to recognize that you are a sinner. If you in your pride believe that you are fine just the way you are, number one, you're dismissing the clear teaching of Jesus. And number two, you'll be condemned because you've never asked for forgiveness. One of the great lies of our culture today is that you just need to be who you feel you are. The Bible says you need to be redeemed and made new. You actually have to die to who you are. It doesn't matter what you feel like internally. Unless you die, there will be no future life. So I want to urge you to hope in this grace. And I want to point you to the Savior who loves you so much that he was determined to die for you. So right after Jesus says all of these things, he gives this man an answer. Do you know what he does next in this passage? He weeps. He weeps. Do you know why? Because many people who heard the salvation he offered ignored it. They didn't believe that it was necessary. They thought he was crazy. And so verse 31, it says, At the very same hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. You know what those verses show? Shows that Jesus was the one who determined Jesus' life. Somebody threatened to kill him, and he said, you don't have that ability. I will do what the Father has sent me to do perfectly. 
and I will go to Jerusalem. And, And the road to Jerusalem ends at the cross. Luke gives you these little foreshadows all the way through. Earlier it said he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He was determined to go there knowing he would die because he was determined to die for your sin. And nothing could stop him. That's the heart of your Savior. He was willing to do that for you And he knew that he would perfectly fulfill the purpose of God. And you can trust that. Not only does he have that determination to do that for you, look at his heart as he weeps for this city. He said, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem because as God sent prophets to them, they hated what God said. They hated having their sins exposed. And we do too. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, if you're in the church, if you're out of the church. Someone comes and says, that's sin. You know, like, like in non-Christian society, if you say that homosexuality is a sin, well, you're a bigot. But that's actually what God says. And in Christian society, if you talk about sins like gluttony, well, that's just not that serious. But it is. It shows that you're taking comfort and consolation in a gift of God rather than in God. It shows that you're willing to disobey what God says about how you treat your body because you think that it doesn't matter and you can just enjoy the gifts of God with no limit. There is a place for Christian feasting, but don't let that become an excuse for idolatry. Doesn't matter where you are, we love to justify our sin and and to say that God will overlook it somehow. And that was true of the people in Jerusalem, and, and, and Jesus describes them as the city that kills the prophets, that silences the voice of God, and we love to silence the voice of God today too. And notice how Jesus responds. He says, this is in verse 34 towards the end, he says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not Willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus shows this is towards the people who would literally crucify him. And his desire for them was not not that they be punished before they hurt him. His desire was to let them kill him. And he still longed for them to be saved, to find forgiveness. That's the heart of God the Father. Because Jesus comes to show you what the Father's heart is like. And the Father longs for you to be saved. You see, people think of God as some sort of monster because people go to hell. Jesus shows you the heart of God. His grief is real and he's grieving for people who would nail him to a cross. These are the people who would condemn him to die, and he longs for them to find forgiveness and salvation. God loves you so much that he would do that for you. Let me ask you, will you trust him and be saved? So as I close, I have three things that I want to encourage you to do as we think about the heart of Jesus here. Number one, examine your heart. Don't assume you're fine. Jesus warns there are many people who are not fine. 
Scripture says it is good for people who call themselves Christians to examine themselves. Paul says examine yourself to see if you're really of the household of faith. Let me ask, if the master shut the door today, would you be in heaven or would you be in hell? Do you know Jesus? Have you repented of your sins? Second, are you committed to obedience? Are you walking in obedience? You might be a Christian and you might feel like, man, life is just so busy. I don't have time to worship God the way the Bible talks about. I don't have time to spend time with other Christians. I want to urge you, if that's you, you're not walking with the Lord. And I want to urge you to repent, find forgiveness, and begin a life of obedience. So commit to obedience. And finally this morning, I want to invite you to a feast. See, the Christian life is, is not just a life of repentance. It's a life of faith in Christ Jesus. It's a life of faith that is full of joy. I started talking about a concert because I believe that's, that's almost a universal experience that everyone can understand and identify with. And as I call you to repentance and faith, I want you to recognize that, that this is not just a morbid thing where we're examining our sins, but this is an invitation to the greatest thing in the entire world and the beginning of a life knowing God who made you to love concerts and feasts and good food, and he is the greatest thing in the universe, and you don't want to miss him. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. I said I wanted you to examine your hearts, and I want to give you just a few minutes to do that. If God has convicted you, if you need to repent, I'm serious. I would like you to talk to me today if you need to be baptized, if you've never been baptized. I'd be willing to stay here as long as it takes to talk to anybody that wants to obey the Lord. And if God has convicted you that, that you are not striving in obedience, if you're not being faithful to listen to his teaching, the thing that you do as a believer is the same that you did as an unbeliever. You just say, God, I'm sorry, I, I, I was wrong. And you ask him for his help to begin a life of obedience he will give you the Holy Spirit and he will give you a new heart and change you and make it so that you begin to love to obey. But it begins with repentance. Would you repent now? Father, I want to pray for myself and on behalf of those here. I ask that you'd help us to rest in Jesus. Lord, I, I'm preaching the way I believe that we're commanded to, just like you said at the end of this gospel. There's forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And I ask that you would let us experience that today. Fill us with the joy that comes from knowing you and teach us to walk in obedience as we should. And lead us in your praises. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.